a year now since uh, President Biden signed an executive order aimed at enhancing police practices across the nation. Recent developments in places like Minneapolis have also garnered widespread attention with a judge granting approval for a settlement agreement between the city and the state human rights department just last Thursday. This agreement mandates the implementation of new regulations for law enforcement officers. So some progress uh, being made here. Uh, in the wake of these events, there's been an intensified call then from black lawmakers in Congress urging further action in the realm of police reform, uh, which raises, I think, several questions, crucial questions I want to try to unpack in this hour with our guests. Questions like, is police reform now experiencing a surge in momentum on a nationwide scale? Don't laugh. Legitimate question, I think. Uh, how can communities and law enforcement agencies work collaboratively to ensure that the progress achieved in police reform is not only substantial, uh, but also enduring? And what role does AI, we were talking about AI earlier today with Sherry Belafonte uh, and Anthony Sparks in our conversation about the Hollywood writer's strike. I mean, AI is impacting every aspect of our lives, and that's in part why they are on strike right now here in Hollywood. Uh, AI taking over everything, including some of their jobs. Uh, and so they're trying to get their arms around what that means for the future. But it's also, again, uh, AI, that is, uh, playing a part, in, uh, a part in every aspect of our lives. And so I want to talk about what uh, artificial intelligence uh, does and means in terms of shaping uh, modern policing. So a whole lot to talk about uh, in this hour with uh, regarding police reform or the lack thereof a year after Joe Biden signed this executive order. Uh, I am pleased to be joined by a retired senior detective supervisor with the LAPD and one of the nation's leading police procedure and use force experts, Tim T. Williams, Jr., who joins us live in studio right now to talk about the future of police reform. Mr. Williams, how are you, sir? I'm doing wonderful. How about yourself? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I'm doing well. <laughs> and I'm glad to, <laughs> glad to have you on and glad to have you in. So okay. thanks, for, thanks for coming to see me. I appreciate Thank it. You. Let, let me just start with a broad question. and we'll, we'll narrow. we got the hour, so we'll narrow as we move through the hour. Um, but let me just, uh, I'm thinking now of, of Ed Koch, former mayor of New York City. Uh, actually, two people come to mind. Uh, I, I spent some time with Ed Koch years ago and, and spent some time uh, as well with the godfather's soul, James Brown. Why do I mention Ed Koch and James Brown in the same sentence? Because both had a, a funny way <laughs> of, of assessing how they were doing, how they were being perceived. Ed Koch, as you may recall, in New York became famous uh, for moving around the city and asking people, how am I doing? How am I doing? Very famous uh, Ed Koch was in New York City. And people remember that to this day. He'd walk around and you'd see Ed Koch in New York. Uh, as mayor, he'd say, how am I doing? How am I doing? And James Brown, every time I saw the Godfather, would always say to me, uh, Tabis, what, what, what the people saying about me? What, what the people saying about me? Uh, always wanted to know what people were saying about him. So just I think of Koch and, and Brown in that regard, uh, which leads me to ask how we are doing. Uh, it's a broad question. Uh, again, it's been over a year since the president signed this order. So broadly speaking, how are how we doing? And then we'll unpack it. Well, how we're doing, <laughs> we're, we're in some businesses not doing. Okay. Um, you know, not, I, not, I'm not surprised by that answer, by the way, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, one of the things I do, I handle cases pretty much all over the country mm -hmm. as it relates to police procedure and uh, use of force issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, everyone looks at the fact that Biden is signing these executive orders, which is great. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. But it doesn't reach down to the local level. Mm -hmm. These are federal uh, mandates that deal with, with federal law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And a lot of and a lot of times it doesn't get down to the the, the local level. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing is that um, one of the things we find that that's an educational problem in that the community 
uh, the advocates don't know that, you know, great at the top. Mm-hmm. But down here where it matters a lot mm-hmm. is just some reach. I handle cases all across the country. Policies and procedures are pretty much different all across the country. Mm-hmm. It's like a, like a quilt. Um, and what needs to be done at the local level is there should be some kind of some type of uniformity that that embraces what is being done at the federal level and and how do, how do you make that happen mm-hmm. well civic responsibility you learn this stuff in high school and you can't wait till you get 18 or, or 21 and be able to vote you got to vote then you got to vote for the right people you got to put square pegs in square holes mm-hmm. you can't and a lot of times we put round pegs in square holes and you're not getting the, the issues done. Then you talk about the unions and what they're doing, law enforcement unions. Well, if you do your civic responsibility, I believe, having worked in law enforcement for almost 30 years in LAPD, mm-hmm. and then doing what I'm doing for another 20 years, that's almost 50 years, mm-hmm. uh, doing this stuff, there can be a change. Uh, sometimes change is, is, is slow. Mm-hmm. But change can happen if you do it right. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a moment ago that what is lacking at the local level, it doesn't trickle down um, to the local level, these uh, federal mandates that the president put in place over a year ago. What's lacking at the local level is uniformity. And I, I heard that, and I'm trying to process it, um, because in every municipality, uh, it's go- policing is going to be done differently. So when you say that what's lacking at the local level is uniformity, unpack that for me. What, what, like, what kind of uniformity ought we be thinking about? What, what, what are you referencing when you say that uniformity is lacking at the local level? Well, the thing is that, for instance, there are certain Supreme Court cases that mandate what law enforcement does mm-hmm. in the area of use of force. Mm-hmm. Um, there are... Uh, situations where, uh, like, for instance, the chokehold. We always talk about this chokehold. Mm-hmm. Well, now in California, that, that chokehold is pretty much almost non-existent because now there are mandates uh, at, the, at the local level that has stripped law enforcement of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a case in San Francisco, a federal case, <coughs> and um, Peace Officer Standards and Training, or POST, if you've, as you heard before, they, they, they teach that, but in, in the learning domains. But, you know, as, it, as you look at the learning domains, that's not policy. It drives policy. Mm-hmm. And then the county council at uh, this particular municipality says, no, we don't want that here. Mm-hmm. And they, they tighten it up in their procedures where that wasn't in place. So the thing is that as you see what's going on at the top, when I say the top, talk about the federal side. Mm-hmm. You have to, the law enforcement, not law enforcement, but the politicians have to look and see what benefits their constituents and try to mirror that, not only at, at the local, but nationwide. Yeah. When we come forward, I want to talk about the chokehold. You raised it. I'm glad you did. I was going to get there. So you, since you beat me to it, um, I'll follow up on it. When we come forward, our guest in this hour uh, is Tim T. Williams, Jr., and we're talking about what progress we have made or not. Uh, in the year since uh, President Biden signed an executive order aimed at least at enhancing police practices. Our guest in this hour is Tim T. Williams, Jr., uh, and uh, I am delighted to have him on this program as we uh, talk about uh, the progress we have made or lack thereof in the year since President Biden signed uh, this executive order, uh, which was intended at least to uh, to bring some reform to the extent that he could do it. Uh, to police uh, departments and practices across the country. Tim T. Williams, Jr., 
uh, is author of a book, which I'll get into a little bit later in this hour, called A Deep Dive, an Expert Analysis of Police Procedure, Use of Force, and Wrongful Convictions. A Deep Dive is the name of the text. Uh, subtitle, An Expert Analysis of Police Procedure, Use of Force, and Wrongful Convictions. We'll get into that a little bit later in this conversation, particularly the wrongful convictions part that I've got some questions about. But we'll get to that. Um, but you, we were talking before that break about the chokehold. Let me just ask you a couple point-blank questions. Um, it's now illegal in California, but how are we doing on making the – I'm thinking of Eric Garner in New York City, any number of other examples I could I could offer – um, that you know better than I, but broadly speaking, where are we with regard to the chokehold in policing across the across the board nationally? Well, again, as I stated earlier, when I when I um, travel the country and handle cases all across the country, uh, the policies are pretty much the same. Procedures are a little different from agency mm-hmm. to agencies, but there are certain things that 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 um, that needs to be focused on uniformly mm-hmm. across the country, one being the chokehold. And it's, it's I call it a, a snail's move. Uh, I can see it going, um, getting a nationwide attention, but it's going to take, it's going to take time. And um, you, you need to have uh, chiefs in place that, that will mandate these types of changes. You have, to, you have to have city attorney, county councils in place to make sure that the policies not cause them liability issues to making sure these things are in place. And the final thing, the most important thing is training. you got to train officers to do the right thing. Everything shouldn't be a fight. You know, I was in law enforcement uh, for almost, like I said, almost Mm -hmm. 30 years. And I'm looking at this, every time there's almost a a police uh, citizen contact, it's a fight. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like a gladiator sport. And 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 it shouldn't be that way. And um, it's how you how you how you treat people, how you talk to people, how you communicate to people, and and how you make your job easy. Now you're going to have some issues where, where all that stuff is not going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's ways to deal with that. But the thing is that you you've got to do do the right thing and, and communicate. Uh, correctly and respectfully. Yep. I'm not sure you can give me an exact number or precise number in this regard, but 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 I want to press on this one more time. I'm just trying to get a sense of how, to your point about uniformity, uh, um, how routine is the chokehold still as a matter of policy in police uh, practices across the country? Are we is it, is it still uh, legal in most departments, not legal in most departments? Like, I'm just trying to get a sense of how the chokehold is being regarded right now. Well, it's, it's being regarded as, a, as, as an issue in law enforcement. And uh, when I get cases that, that involve that, I amplify that. Yeah. And uh, just like um, this issue of positional asphyxiation, uh, where, where officers are piling upon the um, – the, the, the suspect or sure. the person they're contacting, uh-huh. and the person dies in custody. Yeah. Well, the uh, <clears throat> Department of Justice did a study in 19, I believe 1995 uh, dealing with this issue, and it was a very comprehensive, and they, and they give, and in that study, embedded in that study, it was called the anatomy of a struggle. And it talks about how, <laughs> when you do certain things, your body responds, and how that response can end up to possibly death and including death. So going back to the to, to the chokehold, I think is it's like remember here in Los Angeles, remember the bar arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was used until it wasn't used anymore and that, under Gates. 
and uh, that was stopped. And and then then we went to the to the carotid hole, and then that 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 is that was stopped. And then that 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 training, that focus, they that the outlook has to be looked at with different eyes. And if you look at that with different eyes, then you have a different result. Yeah, I'm, I'm st- with respect though. I'm still not sure if I heard an answer yet as to whether or not. More departments or less departments these days are using the chokehold as a legal tactic. That's what I'm, I just want yeah. a, a straight I, answer to that question. Yeah, I, I I see from my from my cases that I handle, I see a less than I than I have seen uh, than I've seen more in the past. Okay, so it's, it's starting to trickle down. Got it. All right. That's what I wanted to know about that. Um, you mentioned training a moment ago, uh, and it seems to me that before you get to training, you got to figure out who you're going to train. Which, which is my way of asking or raising the issue of who you're going to hire. So you train who you hire. So we can, we, can, we, can, we can have a conversation about training, and I've had that conversation ad infinitum, ad nauseum, about the fact that it's the training. I get it. Don't disagree. No argument there. Um, what I've not been satisfied with are the conversations I've had about who we decide to train. Again, who we decide to hire. So let me just ask you point blank, since you are in this space, this is the work that you do. Are we hiring the right or wrong people to be police officers? Well, from my perspective, I'll give you the point blank answer. Mm-hmm. I would say about 67% we hiring the wrong people. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold up. Hold up. H- hiring said, the wrong You said 67%? 60 to 70%. 60 to 70. That's still a high number. It is a high number. A high number of hiring the wrong people. That's right. Good Lord. There's your answer, right? Yeah. If, 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 your, if your assessment is, as an expert, that 60 to 70% of the people that we are hiring to be cops are the wrong people, then to your earlier point, it's not so much just about training. That's why I raised that issue. you got to back up before training. Thank you very much. How, how, how do you fix this issue of hiring the wrong people? Well, I'm going to give you an answer. Okay. The first thing is that, and I've talked about this in other media uh, platforms, mm-hmm. is that you've got to get retired law enforcement from doing background investigations. Mm-hmm. Because what they do, they bring the same type of individuals on that has that that law enforcement motif. Mm-hmm. you got to bring people on that have core values. They have, they have, they have respect for life compassion for people and things of this nature. Now, a lot of them have that when they come on, but then there's this culture that seeps in, the culture that seeps in. And then that modifies, that's changed. Then when you get through the academy, then you go out to patrol. Then you get a training officer. He says, look, young man or young woman, what you learn there in the academy is one thing. This is the street now. Mm-hmm. This is the way we do things here. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Sounds like Lonzo, and I'm, I'm thinking Denzel, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Training day, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. My mind went there immediately. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. But the thing is that, you know, one of the things, and a lot of people don't know this, but there was an HBCU, Lincoln University, mm-hmm. that has a police academy, mm-hmm. you see. And uh, they're trying to get uh, blacks into law enforcement that perhaps would not normally get into law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to get the training that to get them trained to the point to the point that when they go to an agency, that the, what they've learned in this in this academy, you learn what the agency teaches and what they do, but you bring a different culture with you, mm-hmm. and you try to to break the the the, the focus of, of of the things. You know, you talk you talk to um, individuals, and it's always that them and us mm-hmm. situation. I saw that when I was on the department, and I see it a lot uh, when I'm um, when I'm when I'm working on cases and I'm testifying. 
you have officers, especially if you work in a criminal case, and you have officers, uh, detectives who are sitting there, and they're mad-dogging you because you're tearing up their case. Well, if you did the case right to begin with, I wouldn't be there. Yeah. Let, me, so, let, me, let me ask you a question. You mentioned Lincoln University and their, and their police academy. I was in a conversation with a friend of mine this weekend talking about Lincoln University, in fact. So here you come raising it again. Um, let me just ask you again a point-blank question. Why? Two questions, actually. I'll start with this. Why in this present moment would any black person want to be a part of any police force? Like, why, 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 like, why would I want to do that? Well, the thing is that, you know, if <laughs> when I came on, there was about almost 250, 300 blacks in the department. Yeah. And I came on in the L- LAPD, you're talking about. LAPD. LAPD. Sure, sure. And um, there were those that I ran in, in contact with who were blacks in law enforcement that, because um, I was getting ready to leave. Mm-hmm. Because I was I was tired of dealing with the racism mm-hmm. that that uh, touched me, allowed me to that that, for, that no, which made me stay, and to the point where I'm at now. So to answer your question, why would I, as a black, <laughs> would I want to do this? Well, if you want if you want to make change, you got to make change from within that will manifest itself from without. When I was in law enforcement, blacks have issues being in law enforcement being in law enforcement. So the same issues that you see out there, you have those same issues within the department. Yeah, that's my point. I mean, I've, yeah. I've heard these stories time and time, whether I'm talking to you, uh, Cheryl Dorsey's a friend of mine. She's mm-hmm. been on this program. Who was at LAPD. You know Cheryl Dorsey. I know Cheryl. Yeah, I mean, they're all kind of, I mean, I've had these conversations, again, ad infinitum. Um, and every time you talk to somebody black in law enforcement, they tell you about the racism they endured mm-hmm. inside the department. So that's why I ask, like, at this moment, like, why would I want to be I mean, why, why, why volunteer for that is my question, mm-hmm. you know. Well, there, you know, people came before me yeah. that allowed me to have the successes that I had yeah. in law enforcement. I get that. And I believe that, you know, that what I have done will give somebody, if I reach one person, mm-hmm. I'm successful. Because remember the old temptation song, like the snowball rolling down the side of a hill? Mm-hmm. As it rolls, the, the snowball gets bigger and bigger. Well, I may not be here to see it. But, you know, change, change will come. Change will come. Yeah. And, but you got you to gotta be willing to deal with the issues that you're going to face to bring about that change. Yeah. The, 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 the flip side of that question of why would any black person right now want to become a member of any police department anywhere in this country? Uh, maybe it's not the flip side, but it's certainly connected to it. And that is the black cops we saw beating this black man, Tyree Nichols, killing him in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So your your thoughts about that, that we've now gotten to a point where even black cops mistreat black people. Okay. Well, there is a story in the story. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number one, you have uh, you, you specialized units are needed within law enforcement. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't been there. There's a need for that. But you don't let them run rampant. Mm-hmm. What you see there, you had uh, individual black officers who had... Didn't have majority. Didn't have five years on, but working in a very specialized, high-profile unit. And then you find out that um, that same unit, they arrested over six hundred people in one year. Well, red red flags should be coming up all over the place when you had those type of numbers. And it's a leadership problem. It's a leadership problem. It starts at the top. Why, I, why 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 should this why should why should the the simple nature of the number of arrests 
raise red flags? What am I missing here? Well, what you're missing is that what I want to know as a, as a, as a leader, right? well, I want to know how many of those arrests end up to be cases been filed on by the prosecutorial arm of the DA or the city attorney, mm-hmm. and how many of those cases ended up in convictions. Mm-hmm. If I find that there's 600 arrests, but only 50 mm-hmm. or 25 to 50 been filed on and only 25 has been resulted in convictions. I mean, somebody's being harassed. What the hell are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you see, what are you so, doing? Yeah, yeah. It comes to the area what you call constitutional policing. Mm-hmm. Are you playing the numbers game? Mm-hmm. And you look at law enforcement, you look at the criminal justice system as a whole. The numbers drives if you're going to get high up in the organization. Mm-hmm. You see, and and this, you know, they, they as 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 a CEO of, a, of an organization, you got to look at this and examine this, and see if this is going to cause you problems down the road. And I dare say, if if they would examine, you may find that very very few, perhaps, have been have been uh, 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 fouled on, and perhaps very few have been convicted in the crimes that they or alleged crimes that they were arrested for. No, nope, I take your point. Uh, I just want to know why that why that number would be so alarming to someone who's in the business of arresting people and keeping crime off the streets. I take your point, though. If that number is so high <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and, and it's not resulting in anything, then, again, uh, somebody's being messed with on the streets. I, I, I hear you. Our guest in this hour is Tim T. Williams, Jr. Uh, we're talking about uh, this executive order. Uh, we'll talk about a great deal more than that, but this executive order uh, that President Biden signed over a year ago um, to try to uh, bring some police reform uh, to this country um, is the occasion uh, for this conversation, but we're, again, uh, addressing a great deal more than just his executive order with Tim T. Williams, Jr., whose book is called A Deep Dive, an Expert Analysis of Police Procedure, Use of Force and Wrongful Convictions. We will get to uh, a deeper conversation about use of force and particularly wrongful convictions when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. I'm Tabby Smiley. He's Tim T. Williams, Jr. He's our guest in this hour as we talk about, um, in case you've just tuned in, um, this executive order that President Biden signed over a year ago to um, uh, uh, attempt to <laughs> uh, uh, enhance police practices uh, in this country to improve, not just enhance, but improve police practices in this country, trying to get a sense of where we are uh, over a year later and whether or not we're making any progress whatsoever. Um, Tim T. Williams, Jr., let me ask you a question I've asked of others. Um, this past weekend, as you may know, um, we celebrated the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter. There was a huge uh, festival here, People's Justice Festival here in Lambert Park, adjacent to this uh, station. Um, this station was a media partner with Black Lives Matter to celebrate their 10th anniversary. Uh, and again, I've, I've asked this of others, but uh, I'm curious as to your perspective, given that you were on the inside LAPD for almost 30 years, uh, for 20 years now, you've been dealing with these police issues uh, around around the nation and the work that you do now in your own company. Um, just top line for me, what you think Black Lives Matter has done or not done, accomplished or not, accomplished or not as it were, uh, with at least raising the issue of police accountability? Well, they raised the issue of the fact that black lives do matter. And, and they know it manifests itself even within law enforcement. You may not hear a lot of blacks talk about it within law enforcement. I'm from a different mm-hmm. uh, era, mm-hmm. and um, when I was president of the Oscar Joe Bryan Association, we made our voice heard and mm-hmm. known, mm-hmm. and um, we we were so vocal sometimes it it, it you know it, it retarded our career, mm-hmm. but the word had to get out. So the thing is that Black Lives Matter is important, and and they they give a message, but the um, the system, if you will, I'm trying to be nice, the system. Mm-hmm. Has 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 put a, a image on it mm-hmm. 
that is not correct. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that, you know, I'm a a black man. My life matters. I have grandchildren Mm -hmm. that are out there that could be stopped by by law enforcement. Their lives matter, you see. And uh, my siblings, their lives matter, you see. So the thing is that I can leave this studio, walk across the street, have a major issue with law enforcement just because they, oh, that's that Tim Williams over there. Let's stop and talk with him, that type of thing, you see. So the thing is that my life matters, your life matters, black lives do matter, and and we, we, we hear the things that, well, blue life matters, and all that stuff, but that's not the issue. Yeah. That's not the issue. Yeah. The thing is that we, we go back from, from the slave time, slavery time, and um, our lives matter back then, and the same mentality that has seeped through the, the centuries to the decades, which is still present today, our lives matter. Yeah. Let, let me ask you um, why. I, I am curious. I could have started our conversation here. Um, but I'm curious as to why you do the work that you do. Um, as I mentioned earlier, for those who may have just tuned in, you're one of the nation's leading police procedure and use force experts. We'll get to use of force in a second here. Uh, I should say get back to it. We've talked about it a bit. Uh, but, 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 but why do you do what you do? And I'm asking that because you are trying to address systemic problems. Uh, you're trying to address structures but addressing, again, systems and structures is not easy work, particularly when you're talking in the realm that you operate in, and that is the realm of police, policing. So, like, why, 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 why do this every day? Well, I don't it's, want it's, to, it's an uphill yeah. battle if ever there was one. Yeah. Oh, it's uphill battle. Yeah, yeah. It's uphill battle. I'm, I'm going to take you to church a little bit. Come on, let's go. Where much is given, mm-hmm. much is required. Mm-hmm. And I take that very seriously. I was, I was blessed to be exposed to a heck of a lot when I was in law enforcement that can make a difference in this community. The same question you asked me, I'm asked by my peers. Mm-hmm. Why am I doing this? Well, this is my, my, this is my passion. Mm-hmm. These are the, this, this is my core value. If I could help one person, then I'm successful. And I've talked about that in my book, the things, the people that I've helped, mm-hmm. you see, and, and, the, and the changes that, that, that have been made. So the thing is that yeah, I could sit back and and drink my mint juleps and 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 not do anything, but that's not who I am. That's not that's not my that's not in my DNA. Yeah, this is this is I believe this is my mission in life, and I'm continuing to do this until I can't do it no more. Yeah, we talked earlier uh, specifically uh, about uh, about uh, the chokehold. <clears throat> I want to talk more broadly now about use of force. Uh, are we making any progress in this country when it comes? Um, to the issue uh, and how we get to the issue of use of force. Use of force is very is very problematic um, in this country, um, and I see it from from California to the to, to New England states mm-hmm. and all in between. And um, the thing is that you know it's um, again you you've got to put square pegs in square holes. You got to have individuals to have the um, the core values, if you will, to do the right things. Um, it's, it's your respect. We have, you see what's going on, what happened in Lancaster. Mm-hmm. And um, with the with the uh, deputy sheriffs who had these two women that were in the car without, with having, holding babies in their arms. And, um, 
and, and one was socked in the face by, by the deputy sheriffs. You have the other ones, there was, uh, I guess, some type of shoplifting going on. They grabbed her by the neck, threw her to the ground, tased her, and was getting ready to hit her and, and, and thought twice about it, you see. Now the FBI is investigating this. Well, how long are we going to have to do this? How long, how long is this going to go on? That's why I give that high number. That's why I give that high number. It could be lower, but that's why I'm going to keep that high number. 60 to, 60 to 70% yeah. of, of, of hiring the wrong people. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And the thing is that if, if, you, if you allow yourself to be, to be uh, a part of a, of, of, of a culture and, um, and, and, and transform who you are, shame on you. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want you around me. Yeah. When I was testifying in court in in Florida, this DA who happens had the same last name as my name is Williams. He says that um, he said, "Mr. Williams, LAPD torture your core values. Is that right?" I said, "Absolutely not. LAPD didn't teach me anything. My mother and father gave me my core values, and what I what I bought when I was a, when they trained me as a child, and what I bought to the department." Those are my core values. So I bought something to the department, mm-hmm. not the department giving me something that would, that, that we, we quote unquote capitalize it in core values. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, that's why you got to make sure that you're recruiting, you're recruiting the right people. You are recruiting people that that um, that will make a difference in the community. You can't have folk that are doing the recruiting, not recruiting, but the background investigation that are going to have, you know, um, same people that, that are coming out, you have the same type of mentality coming in. Mm-hmm. When I was president of the Oscar Joe Bryden Association, we, we worked in recruitment. We had Muhammad Ali and Kid Norton helped us in, mm-hmm. every, in our, in our uh, events. And we were recruiting more minorities than LAPD was mm-hmm. because of the pull that these two national or international mm-hmm. icons sure, had sure you see so you got to do things a little bit differently than what you're doing and i i applaud lincoln uh university hbcu i'd like to see all the hbcus do this or as many as possible they all have criminal justice systems in the curriculum you see you have your own yeah. academy and, and produce what you want to see in the community i want to come back to this number one more time before i move forward and talk about wrongful convictions in just a moment here um I can't imagine any organization, I'm thinking about this radio station, for mm-hmm. example, and, and, and any organization, in, any entity in this country. Uh, I can't imagine any organization hiring perennially 60 to 70 percent of the wrong people mm-hmm. and surviving. Mm-hmm. And if, if, you're, if, you're, if your assessment is anywhere near correct, uh, it says something about why we're in the mess that we're in. You, you, you can't hire... Uh, to the 60th or 70th, 70th percentile, the wrong people, and think your organization can can succeed. Yeah, and the reason why I get this high number is because of what comes across my desk. Right, and I see this stuff not locally but nationwide. Sure, the same mentality that I see locally, you see it nationwide, and and you got to you've got to make a difference. Change is slow, change is slow, but you got to start. It begins, change begins somewhere. Mm-hmm. 
it begins somewhere, and you got to, you got to make make the change. Now these are my numbers based upon what I've been sure. exposed to. I got it. And uh, you may you may um, have people call in or say, well, Tim Williams, you know, he might be smoking some bad 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 dope or something. You know, mm-hmm. that's not right. You see, that's what my my experience, experience is, yeah. tells me. When we come forward, I want to talk about wrongful convictions with Tim mm-hmm. T. Williams Jr. on KBLA Talk fifteen eighty. Our guest in this hour, Tim T. Williams Jr., is the founder and CEO of T.T. Williams Jr. Investigations, Inc., a company based here in Los Angeles that provides industry-leading expertise in cases throughout the nation related to police procedure, use of force, and wrongful convictions. And speaking of the latter, I don't want to color this question any more than this. Um, Talk to me about black people and uh, their being oftentimes wrongfully convicted. Well... You know, I've working cases on the front end. Um, I would have been very, I've been very fortunate to be able to have input um, in some cases where individuals uh, weren't convicted that would end up in wrongful convictions. Then on the backside, I've worked on cases um, where individuals have been in there 25, 30 years, mm-hmm. and um, and then I, you know, I get the case and and um, and you find out what the issues were back back then. Um, there was one case in Chicago that I handled. It was called the Inglewood Four, mm-hmm. E-N-G-W-O-O-D. Mm-hmm. And um, these four kids uh, were arrested for uh, rape and murder. As you know, as we as I was um, looking at the at the uh, discovered investigation. The person who did it was there at the crime scene, mm-hmm. watching the police officers doing what they were doing. And uh, <clears throat> if they had uh, did what they were supposed to do, they would have found this out. But these kids were convicted and uh, did 20, 25 years. And I got the case. And um, when you have that type of information, you have to have historical knowledge of investigations. Um, if you go up to the organization and miss everything, you, couldn't, you can't do this type of work. So I I went there and I I I, um, I asked them for certain things that I needed, I, which I knew what was going on during that time, and um, I got it and I wrote a report. I went to Chicago, and uh, was um, deposed twice, and um, and um, my deposition uh, st- uh, testimony uh, abrupted the trial. And uh, these these gentlemen, these were grown men. When I got them, uh, they were they were released, and they found they were found you know, that they didn't commit it. They found the person who did it, mm-hmm. and they they got compensated for it. But you can't all the money in the world can't pay no, for that time that kind not. of time. Yeah. And um, um, uh, then then one case here and uh, that this I had a case where the, our, our client was uh, accused of a drive-by shooting, killing him in a drive-by shooting, and his DNA was on the gun. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going through the file. I'm reading the case. Yeah, you know, ain't too much I can do. So I sat down with the defense attorney and said, look, let's re-look at this DNA, and um, we need a DNA expert to look at it for us. So he agreed, and then we went to the court, and the judge allowed us to uh, appoint a DNA expert for it. Long story short, we found that the electropharograms, these are charts that with squiggly marks on it, um, they, um, they were um, stutter marks. 
we found that also that the um, to the error log that they mixed up the samples, and we put all this. This all this came out in trial. It was talk, I talked about it in my book, mm-hmm. and um, he was uh, the the individual was found not guilty. Found guilty yeah. Now, if I did was on that case, if they agreed to what the people was trying to put across, mm-hmm. he was spent the rest of his life in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Yep. Now, these wrongful these wrongful convictions are always arresting, uh, pardon the pun, always disturbing for me. Um, when you see brothers spend that many years behind bars, and then somebody like you comes along, or Barry Sheck, or somebody comes along, uh, and starts asking all the right questions. Um, uh, Brian Stevenson. Somebody starts asking the right questions, mm-hmm. and and these brothers end up getting out. But to your point, no amount of money can bring back what you have lost. Uh, our remaining moments with uh, Timothy T. Williams Jr. When we come forward on KBLA Talk 15, I raised this issue earlier. Uh, Tim Williams Jr. We haven't gotten to it. I'm watching my clock here. Just a few minutes left here. Um, we were talking earlier in today's program about AI, and as I mentioned to you. Um, AI is at the epicenter of the debate that's happening right now in Hollywood, and that's why the writers are on strike and the actors are now on strike uh, together for the first time in over 60 years. Both of these unions are out. But AI is one of the considerations that they're trying to um, trying to, to get addressed. Um, so AI, as I said earlier, is a part of every aspect of our lives these days. How is AI going to impact policing in the future? Well, they're trying to do that now by um, with the uh, with – no, having a predict, uh, uh, predicting crime, predicting outcomes, predicting uh, um, issues, and and we did that when I was in law enforcement. But we did it. We did longhand arithmetic. We sat there. We analyzed. But now you put people putting together these algorithms, and there is bias. There may be biasness this in there, and these you know algorithms. So you got to be very careful with with that. You know with the with Facial recognition was problems, mm-hmm. and and they they stopped doing that um, at least here, in, in in L.A. They stopped doing that because of the problems that had happened. You have witnesses who think they get it right, or getting it wrong, mm-hmm. and then you go with artificial <coughs> intelligence. Then you know, then you have that 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 that, that stigma of, of getting it wrong. And yeah. again, who's putting together the, the the science behind this stuff? Yeah. Let me offer this as the exit question. Um, as I said earlier, what occasioned this conversation today um, was President Biden over a year ago signing uh, uh, that uh, executive order uh, to try to bring some police reform, nothing meaningful coming out of Congress. So he did the best he could with this mm-hmm. executive order. Uh, my exit question is, given what the president did a year ago, never mind whatever progress or lack thereof we've made in that year, are we headed in the right direction when it comes to police accountability, when it comes to use of force, police procedure, et cetera? Well, it's going in a direction, but I think if you want the change that you want to see, it's got to stop at the local level. Mm-hmm. It's got to stop at the local level. He's dealing, he has no power at the local level. He has power at the federal level. And the thing is that the, the public has to understand that, and you've got to, we've got to be sure we get the right people in in Sacramento, mm-hmm. in the in these in these legislators in the states uh, legislators, and uh, that go up through the chain. Same way in the courts, these judges run for 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 election. You got to make sure you have the right people in the in the system, and 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 going on from there. So you got to be a part of the civic uh, discussion. You got to be a part of, of of meaningful meaningful voting. 
and just don't go to the ballots because it's time to go. But yeah. you got your vote does count. His book is called A Deep Dive, an expert analysis of police procedure, use of force, and wrongful convictions. Um, you can learn more about the book and all the other work that he's doing at timwilliamsjr.com. That's timwilliamsjr.com. Once again, the book is called A Deep Dive. And we've, uh, we've, we've, we've taken a deep dive over the last 60 minutes, and now I'm coming up for air. Um, <laughs> Mr. Williams, good to have you in, sir. All the best to you. Well, thank you for having me. That's yeah. our program for today. Time now to make room for the KBLA Midday Money Chain. Up next, the Millionaire's Roundtable with Lynn Richardson to be followed by Ahead of the Crypto Curve with Naja Roberts. Old money, new money. Either way, we got you covered here on KBLA Talk 1580. Thanks for tuning in. Until tomorrow morning, and as always...